Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Jerry Colonna. Jerry is the CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, an executive coaching and leadership development firm whose coaches and facilitators are committed to the notion that better humans make better leaders. For nearly 20 years, Jerry has used the knowledge he's gained as an investor, an executive, and a board member for more than 100 organizations to help entrepreneurs and others lead with humanity, resilience, equanimity, and a whole lot of art. In this conversation with Jerry, I really felt his tremendous warmth and generosity and the vision that he's offering that we can define success for ourselves and be true to that in how we build organizations of aliveness, generosity, and kindness. Here's my conversation with Jerry Colonna. Jerry, in your book, Reboot, you share a lot of your personal story in a very vulnerable and raw way. And you talk about your family upbringing, one of many children with an alcoholic father and a mother who developed a mental illness. You talk about your early suicide attempt as a teenager and being in a locked psych ward for three months. And then you continue about how you achieved early success in the magazine business and then working as a venture capitalist in what was then the beginnings of the tech industry. But the part of your story that I want to focus on is what comes next, how you achieved a level of worldly success but then realized it wasn't actually fulfilling you, that you felt a kind of hollowness and how you left that world of being an investor and went through your own, shall we say, reboot, the title of your book, reboot process. What happened to you? What needed to be rebooted? And how did you do that? Well, thank you for that. And, um, You know, um, there's there was this moment in uh, February 2002, um, and I 
the location of the moment is important. Um, I was, uh, at the time, working for J.P. Morgan, and at the time, uh, running the New York City Olympic bid effort. We're trying to bring the 2012 Games to New York. And there's a whole lot of emotion associated with that because the 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 9/11 attacks had happened just a few months before, and it was all bound up in that sense that my home had been attacked. And I came out of an Olympic bid committee meeting, and I stood across the street from um, the pile, as they referred to it, Ground Zero, which was still smoldering. And um, it all felt like it was falling apart. It felt like there was a there was a complete charade. Um, and you know, in the book, I describe it as being hollow and empty. Um, our mutual friend Parker Palmer, in a brilliant interview that you guys did, talked at one point about um, uh, divided no more, living a life of divided. Um, where the inner and the outer were not in alignment. And um, it was so clear that I had reached that point. And it was also clear that I, I basically had a choice. I could follow my impulse, which was to run down to the subway station at Wall Street and leap in front of a subway train. Or I could do what uh, was the wise thing to do, which was call my therapist, Dr. Sayers. And I chose the latter. And, you know, in hindsight, it was a very, very um, particularly challenging moment because it really felt like I could have chosen either way. Hmm. I was at this, this, this bottom point, and I chose to live. And uh, choosing to live, um, when I think back on it now, and thank you for bringing me back to it, um, Choosing to live is empowering. And uh, I slowly began to build a life that was actually more in alignment, more true, more authentic, more real, more me than I'd ever lived before. And uh, yeah, that, that was that moment. Mm-hmm. I think for many people, it's not a decisive one moment like that, either I'm going to throw myself, you know, in front of a moving vehicle or not, but it's a gradual dawning of a sense that, you know, my life doesn't have the kind of richness and fulfillment that I want. And these are the people, many of these people you work with in what you call these reboot camps. And I'd love as a way of setting the stage for our listeners, what happens in a reboot camp? Here you get people who say, you know, my life is uh, somehow not, I know something's off. Not quite sure what it is. Help me, Jerry. Yeah. So um, what I often advise other coaches is something that I've learned from many of the therapists in my life which is that um, the coaching process, the therapy process, the rebooting process actually begins long before that first encounter. And it begins with uh, someone basically saying, enough is enough. Um, I often think of that St. Augustine quote, uh, my soul was a burden to me. It had grown weary of the man 
it carried. Um, admitting that is a powerful first moment. And so what the folks who come to our camps, uh, what happens is that um, even before they're showing up, when they're applying, when they're reaching out and inquiring, they've already started a process. And the process is, it's not working. Whatever it is that I'm carrying, whatever it is that I'm doing, it's just not working. And I need something else. Now, many times they will start to take a step and then take a step back. And that's a-okay. That's more than okay. Because this is, this is scary business. But um, that process of just pausing, listening to, say, a, con- a podcast conversation or listening to a recording or reading a book or something, that process uh, can take years. And so I focus on that one moment, that singular moment, but the truth is it was years in the making to get to that point. So that's when it begins. Mm-hmm. And then at the first night, um, generally speaking, <clears throat> what they encounter is a safe container, whereas I often say uh, the spinning and the delusion stops. And they're called to just look at their life as it is. I remember uh, one person just was sitting in circle, and I, I remember looking, and, and I just said something like, who would you be if you no longer carried the story of who you are? And he looked up with me with terror and relief all at the same time. Because we don't often talk about the fact that we walk around with stories and persona and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. and, then, and then it unfolds from there. Now, I know, Jerry, in your work that one of your areas of specialization is working with startup CEOs and business leaders. What are the special challenges that these high-achieving types bring to the process of inner discovery? I mean, I think a lot of people come to a place where they say, enough is enough. I'm going to leave my you know, husband or wife or partner, or mm-hmm. I'm going to move to a different place. But it seems like People who are these high-achieving types, running companies, big ambitions, have a particular set of inner demons, if you will, that they have to confront. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, they do. And, and uh, I think it's one way to, to think about it is the cumulative effect of... Um, with a kind of fragility holding the possibility of failing at bay for most of their lives. And so, you know, oftentimes I will start to, to I mean, some, someone might start to laugh because I'll say, <clears throat> you know, as they start to describe what they're going through, I'll say something like, oh, never got it less than an A before, did you? And then they sort of startle. And, well, what's that like? And what happens is that um, it starts very, very early on in the socialization, which is don't make a mistake. Don't make a mistake. Don't take a misstep. There is no 
coming back from failure. There is no coming back from disappointment. And so what starts to, to, to build up inside their minds is a kind of whispery voice that says, you're just one step away from the whole thing falling apart. And the more success that they have, the louder that voice gets, which then increases the anxiety and often turns that into an aggression where they are violent to themselves or violent to the people around them because they cannot withstand the fragility of impermanence or the fragility of disappointment or effectively the fragility of life. And then you layer on top of all of that the expectations of the burdens of taking care of all these people. I mean, you're, you're an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know what it's like to worry about payroll, <laughs> to worry about whether or not one of your employees is going to be able to pay their bills. That's an awful burden. Mm-hmm. You know, quite honestly, in listening to you, I'm relating not so much to the entrepreneurial burden of uh, payroll and stuff like that, but I'm very much relating to this idea of being that type of all-star student who just doesn't have a lot of space to make a mistake or a misstep and uh, then engages in a lot of self-aggression if and when that happens. And of course it happens. We all make mistakes. The more you put yourself out there, the more likely it is you're going to say something weird or foolish or that you regret later. The more more of these broadcasts I do, et cetera, you know? And so right. when people are out there, they're taking a lot of risks, but they have this high-achieving mentality how do you help them be okay with all of the mistakes that happen? Of course. And I'd love if you could maybe give an example of someone that you've coached through a process like this. Sure. Um, uh, first of all, laying it bare, just as the way you've described it, just the way we've been talking about it is often helpful <clears throat> because one of the self-reinforcing negative phenomena is that um, folks often believe that they're the only one who has these voices in their head. Now, it's illogical, and when you, when you begin to speak about it, their adult brain kicks in, and the adult brain says, well, of course, right? I mean, we can, we can describe this. But more often than not, they're being uh, dictated to by their childlike brain. And the childlike brain um, says, you're the only one. Everybody else, for example, seems to be having it all figured out. So I might start a talk with something like, you know, who here is brave enough to admit that they're making everything up every day? And everybody laughs, right? Once we sort of normalize it, then we start to go a little bit deeper. And I start to ask questions about the roots of that belief system. Um, what was it like? What, how was failure continence in, in, in the family structure? Um, at what point in a child's life do, do we start to internalize these messages? And whose messages are they? Whose failure are we so worried about? And then if they are um, in a relationship of some sort or if they're a parent, 
I might do a little dirty trick where I say, um, how would you like your child to feel about themselves if they make a mistake? And then all of a sudden compassion opens up. And I suggest to them that if they would like their child to feel otherwise about themselves, then they need to start to model that for themselves. Because I find that, that trying to cultivate empathy and compassion for ourselves is really, really hard. But when we can do a little mental trick and say, I'm cultivating compassion for myself to be of benefit to other people, well, then that starts to break down some of those barriers. Mm -hmm. You know, Jerry, just in this conversation with you, I feel your warmth and your open-heartedness. I can hear it in the sound of your voice. And I know in your own personal story, you've done a lot of work to be able to embrace yourself in such a way with the kind of warmth that I can hear that you help your clients develop towards themselves. Help me understand your own process of accepting failure, your own mistakes, how you came through that to where you are now. Um, well, thank you, first of all, for, for hearing that. Um, it is a daily struggle, and it's a daily practice. Um, uh, I'll tell you a different story in response to what you're, you've asked. Uh, just the other day, I had to give a talk, um, one of these TED-like talks where you step out into the red circle and there's a big spotlight. Mm-hmm. And I was a wreck two or three days beforehand. I couldn't sleep. I, I, you know, It's one thing to talk in front of a bunch of people for 45 minutes or something like that. I, I, can, I can meditate beforehand. I can do all sorts of things that will sort of calm me. But to give me 10 minutes, that's enormously difficult. How am I going to make a point that has some relevance? Right? All of these stories were just spinning in my head. And just before uh, I had to go out on stage, when I was at my most nervous, I was at the hotel and I ran into somebody on the street or somebody outside the ballroom. And he stops me, and he's very timid, and he says, Are you Jerry Colonna? It's like, uh, yes, I am. And, and he says, Oh, my, I was so excited to see you. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to come to your workshop this afternoon because I had a secondary workshop later on in the day. I said, Oh, don't worry about it. And he said, Oh, it's all sold out. I said, Well, if you're willing to sit on the floor, you just come in anyway. Don't worry about it. And as I walked away, I realized that he was excited because I had somehow touched him in the work I had done. And so just before going out into that incredible churnal ground of like dun, 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 all these noise and the lights and the glare and I'm supposed to perform and I better not fail and oh my God, the book's going to be a failure. My whole life is going to fall apart. I just paused and I thought of this young man. Because the only thing that matters is that heart that sits there. And when I spoke, I spoke to him. And, you know, to go back to your your root question, which was, you know, the process. You know, I've done a half dozen different forms of therapy over my life. I have sat with and trained with many, many different teachers. 
I have read hundreds of books from various wisdom traditions, and every single person says the same thing. The only way to be with the pain that we have is to open your heart to the other's suffering. And that's it. And that's the hardest thing in the world. But it's the only thing that I think gets us through. And so I remember one time seeing Ani Pema and lamenting my life and talking about uh, the pain and suffering of my childhood and the ways in which I had been abused in different forms. And she was with me compassionately, but she challenged me to think of the millions of children, past, present, and, this is heartbreaking, the future, who have been and will suffer. And not, not to make myself smaller in comparison, but to feel the humanity, the universality of, we all go through this, this being human. Being human is hard, and therefore it's glorious. There's a quote from Reboot, better humans are better leaders. And, <laughs> you know, in a way I had a little chuckle when I read this because I thought, well, of course. I mean, what we, do we want a leader that's not a, a, a decent or reasonable human being? Of course a better human would be a better leader. But it's interesting that you even need to write or say what's happened, and I'd love to hear your views on this, yeah. in contemporary leadership that it's trained out the humanity in us. Well, I, I, I don't think it's, it's conscientious or consciously trained out, but I think it's de-emphasized. Um, and I think, I think what, you know, of course, I mean, that's part of the reason why I, I play with that term. Its simplicity is designed to get people to say, well, of course. And then, of course, the follow-on question is, so then why do we have such trouble with leadership? Why are our political institutions led so poorly? Why are our corporate institutions led so poorly? What is going on? And the only thing that I can come to is this being human is hard. This being a better human is really difficult. It's so difficult, in fact, that I think people um, seek shelter in the doing of being a human rather than the being. And so then you look at business schools or you look at leadership training schools and you get this emphasis on practical skills. You get this emphasis on technique and not this emphasis on presence. Mm -hmm. And what's lost is the heart. all sort of at the altar of the prefrontal cortex and outcome and output and efficiency. And then the art of being in community is lost. One of the ways that you help people move into their interior life is through something that you call self-inquiry and asking self-inquiry questions. 
help our listeners understand how you approach self-inquiry, how you teach it. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, here again, I, I try to play with words, and I actually describe it as radical self-inquiry, and, and that's a little bit designed to poke fun at it. Um, it's radical because we don't do it. <laughs> It's rare, for example, like a, a, a little uh, tactic that I will use is I will ask somebody to consider how they really are. All right, and so I'll take a, a, a phrase that we often use, you know, you and I meet each other on the street and I say, oh, how are you? And your first response tends to be a bit of a persona. I'm busy. I'm fine. I'm this. I'm that. I'm off to this. All right. No, 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 stop, slow down, pay attention, how's your heart, how's your breathing, what was your morning like, did you sleep well last night, just simple little tactics to sort of bring it down, and then to go a little bit deeper, to ask oneself questions like, what do I believe to be true about the world? For example, if I believe it's a dog-eat-dog world, then I will tend towards a self-optimization. And I will build a company or an organization or a community that takes care of itself first. But if I believe that human beings are basically fundamentally good and that they're just obstructed and obscured in their ability to live that way, then I will seek to find common ground. And all my actions will flow from one of those two choices. How do I define success? How do I define failure? What is it that I'm aiming to become? Because we're all always in a process of becoming, right? Um, When you started off and, and you noted that uh, I, you were feeling some sense of presence and heart that I had. Well, I was glad because that's what I aim to be every single day of my life. And I know that I fail every single day of my life. But I also know that my life is better. I, I believe that our lives are better when we aim to do things like that. And that's a fundamental belief system that I carry. So, so, that's what I, I, I'm really reaching for with this notion of self-inquiry. It's a way in which all of those persona, all of those stories, all of those delusions that we carry about ourselves are kind of stripped away. And with love and compassion, we're just sort of staring at us. Who are we and what do we believe about the world? What, what makes my heart go pitter-patter? You brought up an interesting radical self-inquiry question, how do you define success? Let's take a moment. How do you define success, Jerry, at this point? Um, <clears throat> have I been kind? I mean, it, it, have I been kind to myself? Have I been kind to others? You know, I told that story about that, that, that man who stopped me at the hotel before I went on stage. And uh, part of the reason that made such a difference to me was that I knew that his having listened to some of my podcasts had eased his heart. 
What a gift. Mm. It's a gift to be kind. <laughs> yeah. I'll just note that. <laughs> Let's talk to that person who's listening who says, you know, truth be told, there's a gap between how I'm living my life and what I really think a true definition of success would be. I'm living my life overworking, overgiving, you know, I feel under financial pressure, whatever it might be. And, whatever you know, stories. yeah, but you know, hey, Jerry, these stories are real. Like I'm under real yep. pressure, real external pressure. And so my yep. real definition of success might be taking time to walk in the woods and kayak and spend more time with my kids. But I am under external pressure. There's this gap here. What would you say to someone who reports that to you? Well, there's a, there are two steps um, to be aware of. The first is that when we pause, when we stand still, when we sit still and start to pay attention, one of the things that I have noticed happens is that another set of self-criticizing, self-critical vo- uh, voices come up. And, that, and, and those voices tend to say, um, uh, look at how, how terribly you're living your life. Well, look at what's wrong with you. Um, or they might say something like, oh, how self-indulgent is it to try to define success as being able to kayak every day or be home? And so all these other confusing voices come up, perhaps. That's step one. The second step is the most important step. The second step is to understand that The reason we have persistently lived a life out of alignment with who we truly are and the reason that all of those self-critical voices exist, the reason is kind of surprising and perverse. They are there. Those choices are made to keep us safe. They are actually coming from a place of love. So the voice that says um, it's self-indulgent to pause and look at your life and to design your life in such a way that you have hours each day for loafing. Well, it's probably trying to protect you from being humiliated, for being found out or called lazy. There are all sorts of these structures that sort of form early on to keep you safe, to protect you. And the third step is to then love those voices, is to love that part of you that is trying to keep you safe, even if it's doing it in a way that is painful. And the magic moment is to turn around and say, thank you but I actually don't need you to tell me that anymore because I'm an adult and I'm safe and I know how to love and I know how to belong. And if you could just stand down, I got this. That's the maneuver I always recommend. But, Jerry, what if the person still feels a gap of some kind between their deep inner values and the structure of their life 
and they say it's because the structure of their life is by XYZ necessity coming from the outside. Well, oftentimes there are necessities. I mean, we, we do need food, shelter, clothing. We need to take care of our physical expressions, right? Um, but oftentimes there's an over-the-top um, adherence to the, to the implicit threat to those things that may be operating. And another good move at that point is to ask oneself, how has that belief system been useful to me? Mm-hmm. Because, for example, <clears throat> uh, one of the things that I carried was the belief that um, I had to have a certain amount of money to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Now, Again, logically, there is a certain amount, because we live in a particular capitalist kind of society, there is a certain amount uh, that one needs to, to, to be whole in one's body. Right? That's, that is a truth, inescapable. But the attachment to it was much greater than it was out of proportion to the reality, to the logical reality. And we kind of know that. We operate it and we feel it, but then it goes down to, well, I need this. So we look at that structure and we turn around to ourselves and we say, well, how has my belief that that is true served me? Right? In my case, the belief served me and got me out of Brooklyn, where I was born. It did create a certain amount of physical well-being and safety, not only for myself, but for those I love. And how has it impeded me? Because it has also impeded me. And that's the kind of radical piece of this, is to turn around and say, well, wait a minute. There's a superpower implicit in that belief system. But as Marvel Comics likes to teach us, every superpower has a negative dark side, especially when it's inappropriately applied. Hi, friends. My name is Jono Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Some students from Southwest Uganda recently wrote to us and said, in spite of war and violence, Sounds True's materials are helping us really change. We can laugh more. We believe in life again. We can love again. And we are even beginning to allow forgiveness and compassion to enter our consciousness. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org.
One of the images that you introduce in Reboot in the book is this image of the leader as an open-hearted warrior. Talk to me some about the warrior qualities that you think are needed here. Uh, sure. Um, well, that comes... I, I, I learned that image from my uh, lineage, from my Buddhist lineage. We often speak about the warrior stance, and the warrior stance, to be clear, is an open heart, but a strong back. And when I first heard that imagery, um, I immediately applied it to business because it makes so much sense to me. Um, and where I, from where I sit, I think that the, the strong back of that warrior leader is someone who can hold fast to values hold fast to integrity and also understand that things like clarity and organizational structure is incredibly important because it calms the nervous system of people who have to operate within that. Oh, I know what success is. I know what failure is. I know what my job is. Another uh, aspect of that is a kind of fiscal discipline, right? I make a dollar. I don't spend more than a dollar. That there's a there's a strength in being able to do that. Oftentimes, um, that strong back is not coupled with an open heart, and so you you can see a kind of stultifying, um, fear-driven, uh, closed environment that's going on, and that's partially because to keep your heart open as a leader means to subject yourself to the projections of those who ask you to lead them. You become their parent. You become their disapproving or approving parent. You become uh, every past poor leader that they've ever had. You become every potential great leader that they could be. You become a role model. And so to hold your heart open means that you will suffer in many ways. But, of course, you'll also feel joy, you'll feel happiness, you'll feel love. And, uh, you know, another way to think about this is I often will, will, will put a coffee cup or something in front of a, a client, and I will say it's, it's like this, right? The, the, the mug is the container, and a container without content is meaningless. But content without the container is useless. And so you actually need both. You need, we need both the strong back and the open heart as adults, and we absolutely need that as leaders. And even best of all is when our organizations and our, our, our communities can hold that. And then that means that, you know, if we take it to the community, for example, then, then the well-being of all the participants is cared for. The physical well-being is cared for. And then the existential, spiritual well-being is also cared for. Both are taken care of. And that, to me, is the highest expression of adulthood. I love this image of the open heart 
and the strong back. I totally love it. And yet I imagine someone listening said, okay, strong back. I'm a leader. I'm, I'm with you, Jerry. Check. Open heart. I want that too. And then you said, you're going to have to suffer, feel suffering. And that's where I imagined someone saying, uh, can't I be uh, an open-hearted, strong back warrior leader without suffering? I want to be like a happy leader, you know, positive leader. Yeah, we don't get to cherry pick emotions and experiences, do we? <laughs> um, if you'd like to feel joy, you have to be willing to feel pain. It's really that simple. Um, I think the choice is numb or not, and that's it. And unfortunately, we're so afraid of suffering that we choose to numb. And there are a bazillion ways in which we numb, but, but uh, the opportunity to feel it all. What did John Cabot say? Call it the full catastrophe living. You know, he said, it's just like everything. Bring it on. I can imagine in your work with people in leadership roles that consciously feeling that suffering that comes with the open heart is really a part of your, a deep part of your coaching work. Because I, I don't think, especially in our sunshiny culture, that that's often what we think we're supposed to be as leaders. We're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be the optimistic one, the positive one, the one who's always, you know, shining the bright light of the possibilities. Yeah. You know, um, what comes to mind is something uh, Parker Palmer says in Let Your Life Speak, and he, he talks about leading from within in, in one of the chapters in that book, and he talks about um, what he calls functional atheism is when the leader um, puts themselves in a position where they're supposed to always fill in the blank, have the answers, be optimistic, um, be the sort of uh, eternal source of sunshine and brightness and answers. And, and the truth is that um, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Um, uh, 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 when someone who holds, holds positional power, structural power, role power, um, holds that false view of themselves, it actually has a, uh, an unintended negative consequence throughout the entire organization. It instills distrust. Hmm. Because everybody knows when they're faking it. Everybody around them knows that they're gritting their teeth and saying, I'm fine, and they're not. Um, in the book, I tell this story of uh, going to a movie with my youngest son, Michael, who yesterday turned 22. Um, but in the story, he was about 13, 14 years old. And uh, the movie itself was very upsetting. It, it, it provoked childhood memories. Um, and I, I was surprised. I was so surprised that I broke down into tears and I was just bawling. And I couldn't move. And uh, Michael sat next to me. Now, understand this, right? It, it, dad and his son. And dad is just a blubbering mess. And uh, he sat with me. And he was, you could feel it. He was confused and scared. And then he said, 
one of the most magical things anyone has ever said to me. He said, Dad, you might as well tell me what's going on, because I was going to protect him. I wasn't going to tell him what's going on. But he said, Dad, you might as well tell me what's going on, because if not, I'm going to make shit up, and it's going to be negative about me. And the brilliance of that assertion, right? Because when, when I think that when the leader is walking around, you know, pretending to only see sunshine, pretending to only be positive so that there is some sort of source of never-ending happiness, they're not really telling people what's going on. And in that distrust and in that gap and in that dissonance, people are going to make shit up. And what they're going to make up is going to be negative, usually about them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not suggesting that the leader should walk around and say, I'm a mess. I'm filled with anxiety. I don't know what to do. Because that's projecting all of your stuff onto other people and asking them to solve it. But to calmly self-soothingly acknowledge that you don't have an answer, that today's a hard day, that you're scared, that last night you hadn't slept. To acknowledge all of those things creates the space to be met by another human being. And isn't that wonderful? Hmm. You know, I'm glad, Jerry, that you brought up a sobbing incident and this idea of the power of tears to it's really part in a way of the warrior leader pose of having an open heart at least in in my experience and as i was reading reboot and there were a couple of instances where you shared tears in your own life including this sobbing incident with your son, I remembered the time when I met you. And it must have been, mm. I don't know, 10-ish years ago when we were in a car mm -hmm. together. And I don't know if you remember this, but at one point, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but your, your eyes welled up. And I think a tear might have even dropped out. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in a car with this high-powered investment guy. And I think I think he just shed a tear. Like, and, I mean, I almost fell off the seat, the back seat. I couldn't believe it. And it was so uh, inspiring to me, actually, that people could be in such high-powered positions and also be tenderhearted. Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for remembering that. I remember it. It means a lot to me that you remember that. <sighs> you know, part of the dissonance that I experienced um, that led me to walk away from my experience as a, as a venture capitalist was um, in the year or two previous to that famous incident outside of Ground Zero that I was describing before was that uh, I was uh, for years working with, in relationship with depression. And I would uh, go to my office at J.P. Morgan and I would pass the desk of my colleague, Carrie Racklin, who remains to this day a really dear and close friend. She's a soul sister. And she'd look up at me and she'd say, bad day, Jeff? 
and I'd say, bad day. She'd say, okay, I'll cancel your meetings. And I would go into my office, and I would close the blinds, and I would cry. And I would hide. And no one knew, except Carrie. And that was part of the suffering, the needless suffering that I would put upon myself. Because I would tell myself that I had to put this false front on, that I had to change the experience that I was having, um, and that I had to cherry pick, as I was saying before, cherry pick. I'm only going to have positive experiences. Um, in effect, I was saying to myself, to survive, to make it through, to get through, please stop being a human being. Oh, and by the way, don't feel pain because you've put yourself into that box. Well, that's absurd. And so now, fully feeling my feelings is so a part of who I am that I don't even notice sometimes. Like even in our conversation, I've teared up, I've welled up. I've thought of this person, I've thought of that person, I've felt joy, I've felt laughter. And, you know, for me, this is the definition of aliveness. You asked before, what's the definition of success? And I said, kindness. Here's another one. Alive. Mm -hmm. Full. The whole Megillah. <laughs> one of the things I'm reflecting on is how our corporate cultures don't really invite the kind of aliveness that you're describing. And here in the spirit of the vulnerability of our conversation and the truth-telling, to share that uh, this year, my 93-year-old mother transitioned out of her body. And leading up to that process, I felt like I had maybe 25% of my normal energy for creativity and productivity. You know, I was really in a, in a deep inner space. And at one point I said, you know, you mentioned your analyst and now I'm going to bring up my therapist and we're going to talk more about your analyst uh, in a mm -hmm. moment, uh, Dr. Sayers, because you share some great teachings you received from her. But anyway, I said to my therapist, I said, how do people do it? Here I work with 120 people, it sounds true. I know many of them have had parents and grandparents die. How did they make it through the workday like this? Like, just like you are, Tammy, they're at 25% their capacity, but you don't know it. And I thought, oh my God all these people are coming to work not really being comfortable saying, you know, I'm only at 25% of my normal capacity. And guess what? It's lasting for more than the three days off I was given for my, you know, grievance uh, right. allowance. It's going on for months. This is a really deep process I'm in. Right. So the question that comes from that is if we want to create corporate cultures, organizational environments that actually welcome our full aliveness and full feeling, we have a long way to go. What are we going to do to go from where we are to a place like that? Yeah. Well, the wisdom of our friend Parker comes to mind again. Um, he often says that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. You know, First of all, I want to just acknowledge your suffering. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, 
we I have been in those experiences that you just described. And yes, at any given moment, some percentage, 10%, 20%, 30% of the people you encounter every single day carrying a broken heart. Every day. Every day. If it's not ourselves, the people we encounter have a broken heart. But we don't have systems that allow the recognition or acknowledgement of that. And the thing that, that always strikes me is, you know, when I, when I, I live in these worlds, these intersectional worlds where, you know, I've got this sort of Buddhist side of me, I've got this sort of technology company side of me, I'm this, I'm that, I'm all in these different places. And almost always when I am working with folks who might define themselves in a more spiritual context, they look at me a little askance and say, well, you know, those corporations, they're awful. And, and I, I want to bring their attention to the fact that because we don't know what to do with our suffering in our systems, our organizational systems, our organizations then perpetuate violence. Violence to the planet, violence to the community, violence to ourselves. I'm reminded of, of something that happened. I, I, I was a guest on a documentary that CNN produced, and uh, it was on mental health in the technology industry in Silicon Valley. And uh, there was this moment where it was a really intense encounter I had with the uh, correspondent, Lori Siegel. And she was in tears because we were just feeling her feelings right there. Anyway, um, a few weeks later, I got a phone call from uh, the head of HR at a very large software company who asked me to come speak to the senior team. And when I probed and I asked why, uh, she said that health care claims for depression and anxiety among the children of their senior executives had gone up 70% in the previous two years. Hmm. The children, they didn't volunteer for this. They didn't sign up for that. And because that organization at that point didn't know what to do with the inherent suffering that comes from being humans in organizations. There was a violence that was being perpetuated down to their children. Simply because the bereavement policy calls for three days of grief. What fucking nonsense. Excuse my language. It's all right. But we have, we're better than that. I mean, the Buddha taught we are the sentient beings capable of enlightenment. Holy mackerel. We are better than this. 
can I hold your heart because your heart is broken because your mom has transitioned to another phase of life? Isn't that more important? I don't know any wisdom tradition, and 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 you folks, it sounds true, you know all the wisdom traditions. I don't know any wisdom tradition that says, grief, yeah, get over it. Be done. There's work to be done. Mm-hmm. Now, Jerry, let's say someone's listening and they're like, I want to create a culture where I work, whether they're in a senior leadership position or another position of influence mm. that welcomes real feeling and the aliveness that comes with that. Where do you think their mm. point of power is to do that? Uh, with themselves first. With themselves first. I recognize structural power. I recognize, too, that, you know, I identify as male. I identify as white. I'm cisgendered. Um, that creates all sorts of opportunities for the things I'm talking about that are not available to every single person, however they identify. And that gives me certain kinds of uh, access to experiences that that are just not available so to recognize first of all that that is a truth is important and there is an opportunity to look at our own experience our own relationship first and say um, how am I leading my life? How am I living my life? How am I responding to the inevitable ways in which I disappoint myself or do not live up to the aspirational goals that I carry? What am I working with with regard to that? And then, in those moments of encounter in which I might have temporary power, I might have temporary agency to change culture. What can I do to lean into that place? You know, I, you know, we were talking before about questions to ask. I often will ask uh, folks that I work with, what kind of organization do you want to work for? Because you co-create that every single day of your life. From something as simple to, uh, you know, if you work for a large corporation and some percentage of the staff might even be um, contract employees because they're emptying waste baskets. How do you greet them? Do you look somebody in the eye? When you hop into a, a cab or, I guess, an Uber or whatever, do you ask a genuine, how are you? And do you listen? Um, you know, you asked about the company, but... I would, I would expand it and say, what kind of experience do you want to have every day? Mm-hmm. Every single human encounter is an opportunity to practice. Every single one. Including the one you have with yourself. Every single day. Now, I, I mentioned that I wanted to speak more about Dr. Sayers, the analyst that you write about in Reboot. And you tell a lot of great wisdom-teaching stories that <laughs> involve Dr. Sayers, how much you learned from your work 
with her. The part that really got my attention was when you were writing about the migraines that you were experiencing and you were unclear what the cause was and how she helped you identify three questions that Mm. could unearth what was going on underneath these migraines. And I wonder if you can share those three questions with our audience. Sure. And, And thank you for bringing Dr. Sayers back into my heart right now. Um, um, and, and for context, she is, she was, uh, I worked with her for 27 years. So shout out to her. She's a true bodhisattva. She was, uh, she grew up in Brooklyn. Um, nice Jewish lady from Great Neck, Long Island, uh, who could call me on my bullshit (laughs) <laughs> faster than anything else and the, and including the self-denigration and things that I would sort of put myself through. But what you're referring to is uh, this moment when I was sort of struck down by this overwhelming migraine slash cluster headache that actually sent me into the hospital. And I had grown up with migraines. And uh, the breakthrough question, the first question she taught me she asked me, was, what are, you, what are you not saying that you need to say? And so I turned that into, what am I not saying that I need to say? And uh, that's a powerful question. What am I not saying that I need to say? Um, here again is another instance in which we tend not to pay attention. We know that we're not saying something that needs to be said. We just don't acknowledge it. And in my case, I somaticized tension that would arise from that. And then that led to two corollary questions, which is, what am I saying that's not being heard? Which I think is a tremendous source of suffering. And it's important to recognize that we often say things without words. We might be saying something with actions. And then equally important, because it's empowering, not because it's designed to produce guilt. What's being said that I'm not hearing? Because the people around us speak to us all the time. Sometimes they speak to us with just a look, with a raised eyebrow, with a wince, with just a felt sense, the whispery. Sometimes they're actually talking to us and we choose not to hear what they're saying or to take it in. And if we have positional power in any structure and we are doing it, we could be a parent not listening to our child. We could be a partner not listening to our life partner. We could not be listening to ourselves to the point where our bodies actually have to grab our attention by somatically sending us an unmistakable message like a headache that throws you on the ground and says, pay attention. I am in pain. And if you no longer pay attention to me, I will grab your heart and I will throw you to the ground and I will make you wake up. And uh, that's what Dr. Sayers from Brooklyn taught me, among many things. Mm-hmm. Those are three powerful questions. 
There's another powerful question that you bring up in Reboot that I think will help me a lot. It already has. You know, I can complain about different things, different people, different things that are happening. It sounds true. And you have this great question. How am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? I thought, you know, that's a question I just, I think I'm going to have to like... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know where I look every day. Put that on my watch or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun question. Um, first of all, I'll break it down a little bit. And, and it's really important not to use that question to invoke guilt and more self-criticism. It's really designed for good discernment, clear seeing. And I'm going to go back and break down the question. So I, I, I choose the word complicit, not responsible. 50, 60% of the times that I first say that question, people will hear the word, how am I responsible? And I actually think that's another ego trick. Because the ego wants to either be completely unresponsible, <laughs> the conditions of our lives, <laughs> or totally responsible. And the truth is it's neither, right? But how am I complicit in going along with the things that are happening in my life? And I think that that's a really important uh, question. And then the second half that I think is equally important is this notion of, I say I don't want this. And yet, situations conditions persist. So what's up with that? I'll often make somebody laugh and I'll say, you ever date the same person three or four times, even though the meat bag of who they are changes? (laughs) What's up? And it's, it's, uh, it goes to the heart of something I was saying before about, um, Oftentimes, the conditions repeat themselves in our lives. The conditions in our lives repeat themselves because they're serving some sort of hidden purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, you know, Groundhog Day, there's a lesson. Sometimes there's a lesson. But it's because there's a system that needs to be maintained. Um, my partner, Khaled Halim, uh, likes to say that the conditions we survived as children become the conditions necessary to our survival as adults. I'll say that again. The conditions we survive as children become the conditions necessary to our survival as adults. So, for example, I may need to feel, in order to feel safe, I may need to feel financially threatened. Because I grew up in a family where that was the norm. And if I don't feel financially threatened, I feel out of sorts. I feel really confused. I feel like I may not belong. And so just when I get everything settled and I've paid all my bills, I go out and overspend. Thus being complicit in creating conditions I say I don't want. When we explore that, 
we get to unpack some really juicy tidbits about how are we actually organized. Or we start to make conscious the parts of ourselves that um, it has served us to be unconscious to. And then we get to choose. What kind of adult do I want to be? Mm-hmm. I love the question, Jerry. There's something about this word complicit. I don't hear it as responsible. I hear it as like even a small amount. I'm definitely contributing to this and there's something I could do about it. How am I compl- Huh, oh, okay. I, I feel like it really opens up a creative response. I'm very grateful to you for the question. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, 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 and yes, Yes, there's a there's agency in that word, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. You right? Like you have power. You can do something about this. You can choose not to be complicit. I have one final question for you, Jerry, which is someone's listening and they're inspired, strong back, open heart. This is the kind of leader I want to be. But there aren't that many examples in our culture of people who have done this successfully run big companies. When I think of the leaders, they're people whose hearts seem, I don't know, little armored, uh, strong back, yes. Do you believe truly that this is a recipe for success for future leaders? How do you define success? (laughs) If we define success as aliveness and kindness, then the answer is yes. If you define success as becoming an adult, as using the process to become an adult, then the answer is yes. I find it curious that people need to, need to see a model of someone who has done this to be assured that it is possible. I understand it, but I don't know that that's necessary. Mm-hmm. I think that we can imagine a world in which leadership is like this. And as long as we can imagine that, then we can move towards it. As long as we're willing to forgive ourselves when we fail, because we will. But I'd rather live in a world in which people who have power are moving towards that kind of experience than not bothering at all. You know, there was a section in the book where you share a lesson that you learned from your co-founder at Reboot, Ali, and Mm. it's about the wisdom of horses. And you write, Mm. horses do not base their choice of the leader of their herd on strength or intellectual wisdom, nor is the choice based on which member might keep the herd safe from a predator wolf. They choose the one who feels the group best and who cares the most. And I thought, that's really interesting. What if we chose our leaders, whether they're political leaders or organizational leaders? And, you know, quite honestly, Jerry, it inspired me to be one of those people who feels the group best and who cares the most. And I thought, I I don't spend enough of my attention on that feels the group best and cares the most. We can learn from horses. We can learn from horses. And, and you know, Allie is the one who taught me that we can learn from horses. And when we, when we work with, with leaders, and Allie does this better than anyone I've ever encountered, when she uh, lets people feel their horse body, as she calls it, and it's important to understand that a horse is almost... <laughs> 
like this, this magnified limbic nervous system. It just feels the world somatically. And it can sense another horse's emotions or another mammal's emotions just by standing next to them. When we allow that part of our mammalian structure to connect with one another, then we can move in a sense of belonging and safety that I would define as love. What if your organization was a source of love? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if we define success as that at the end of the day, the people with whom I work may be tired, but felt better about themselves than they did at the beginning of the day? Jerry Colonna, I've loved talking with you. <laughs> oh, well, I've adored talking with you, Tammy. What it's a successful just, it, conversation we've had. Uh, <laughs> kind and caring. That's right. I've been speaking with Jerry Colonna. He's the author of the new book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. And what a mensch and kind human you are, Jerry. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Tammy, let me just say thank you for reading the book so closely. It means a lot to me. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world 